morning, everybody. It's good to have you here as we continue in a series that we started a few weeks ago now uh, that we have been calling This is Grace. And of course, in this, t- in this, uh, this conversation that we've been having, the, the main topic that we've been dealing with is grace. And quite frankly, the reason we've been talking about this, we said, is because we believe here at Grace Church that grace is really, 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 really important. And so uh, not only is the name of our church grace, uh, but grace is also the central teaching that we are focused around. It's kind of our heartbeat. It's the thing that we get jacked up about here at Grace Church. And it really is the thing we believe that every person needs more than they might know. Uh, We believe that an encounter with grace, that an experience with grace has the power to totally transform your lives. And so we said, man, we think grace is really important. So that's why we're doing a six-week series kind of focusing in on this topic of grace. And so the real question, just real easy, is this. If grace is so important, if it's such a big deal, then uh, like what is it, right? Like what exactly is grace and how are we to understand it? And a few weeks ago when we began this conversation, some of you might remember we said the answer to that question is actually probably more complicated than we might think, at least at first glance. Uh, Because to simply give a definition of grace or to simply uh, provide an explanation of grace, you know, it doesn't go far enough to describe the experience of grace. Um, There's some things in life, all of us know this, where a definition and explanation uh, falls short. It doesn't do justice to explain the experience of something, right? You think of a baby or you think of the Grand Canyon or you think of relationships. You You can define those things and you can give an explanation about those things, but it doesn't really say anything about the experience of those things. And so that's really the big idea of this whole series. The, the idea that we've been unpacking, kind of our thesis statement for this entire six-week series, has just simply been this. We said that we believe that grace is not a concept to be understood, but grace is rather a reality to be experienced. And so that has been the big idea that we've been unpacking. Man, grace is not just a concept to understand, right? It's not just some abstract, theological, doctrinal, you know, church statement. It's an experience. It's a reality um, that's available to each one of us. And so if that's the case, the question, quite simply, is not just, do you know what grace is? Uh, Probably the better question is, have you experienced it? Have you had a real encounter, a real experience with grace? Because what we've been saying in the series is, man, you, could, you can actually go your whole life. You can grow up in the church. You can grow up on, around religion. You can know about grace and never have an experience with grace. So the real question is, have you experienced it? And so in this series, rather than trying to provide definitions and explanations of grace, as we said, grace is more than a concept to understand. What we've been doing then is we've been looking at six indications that you've experienced grace. And so each week, we're looking at a different indication. Our hope is, as we talk about these six indications that you've experienced grace, then maybe it will help you self-diagnose, right? It'll kind of help you, help you ask the question, have I really had an encounter with grace. And our hope is that through this series, as we look at these indications, not only will it help you understand if you've experienced grace, but maybe it'll also point you in the direction of where you can find grace. And so six indications that you've experienced grace. This is the third week, so we're looking at the third indication. If you missed the past couple of weeks, the first week, we said the first indication is quite simply this. You, you know that you've experienced grace when you're disturbed by grace. So that was week one. You know you've experienced grace when you're disturbed by grace. Week two, we came together and we said this. You know you've experienced grace, second indication, when you're devastated by sin. And so each week we kind of unpack those ideas. And let me just mention that if you missed those um, couple, last couple of weeks, I would encourage you, if you want to catch up, you can do that. You can either go to our website, you can watch the videos there, um, or you can subscribe to our podcast if you'd like to. Um, listen to those sermons when you work out or on your ride to work or whatever it is that you want to do. But I'd encourage you to do that because I believe that today's conversation is actually going to make a lot more sense in the context of the previous two conversations that we've had. But today what we want to do for the, the whole time that we have today 
I'm going to talk about the third indication that you've experienced grace, okay? And here it is, just simply, how do you know you've experienced grace? You know that you've encountered grace. You know you've experienced grace when you become disinterested with fairness, okay? You become disinterested in fairness. And, uh, and what do I mean by that? Well, let me explain what I mean. And I'll do that by taking you a passage of scripture. So if you have your Bibles, why don't you grab them with me? We're going to go to Matthew 18 this morning. We're going to look at this idea of being disinterested in fairness. Okay, so Matthew 18, take your Bibles and flip there. And let me just say that if you don't have a Bible, if you just flat out don't have one, didn't bring one, and you don't own one, um, would you just do us a favor? Would you just take one of ours, make it a gift from us to you, write your name in it. We think it's really important that you have a Bible, and we'd love to give you one. And so you can just take one of ours. So Matthew 18, page 688, and those Bibles that we've laid out there for you, you can go ahead and turn to uh, Matthew chapter 18. Um, there, Matthew 18. Um, as you're flipping there, I, I am convinced, I've become convinced um, that every single one of us, of course I can only speak for myself, but in my experience what I found is I believe that every single one of us has a natural resistance to unfairness. I think it's something that's inside of every single one of us. We have a natural resistance, I would even say an intolerance to things being unfair especially when we're the ones who are the victims of unfairness. When we're the ones who are the beneficiaries of unfairness, we seem to be okay with it. But when we're the victims, it really bothers us. And I am reminded of this every day. Um, I got two little boys at home, got a four-year-old and a five-year-old. And my guess is if you have little kids, uh, you could probably speak the same. That I realize that, man, my boys, uh, they, are, they have this resistance inside of them naturally against unfairness. They don't want things to be fair. So most of the interactions that my boys have, the fights that they have and the tensions that they, that they have together, they play well together too. But when they fight, it's almost always about this issue of fairness, almost always. And I hear in the way they talk. So when, when my boys, their, their names are Nehemiah, he's five, Leland is four. When they come up to me and, and, and they have you know, a complaint about their brother or they come up to Jess and they have a complaint about their brother, it's always about fairness. And you hear the way they talk. So Leland will come up and he'll be like, you know, be whining or something. And we're like, what's wrong? He's like, well, Neem took my Legos, you know. He's like, I have eight Legos and he has 10 Legos. And, and what is he talking about? Well, it's an issue of fairness, right? He wants things to be fair. Now, of course, Nehemiah is fine with it uh, because when we benefit from unfairness, we tend to be okay with it. But when, we are the, when we're the victims of it, we're not. In fact, I remember one time um, we were on vacation as a family and we were in a place called Leland, Michigan. And um, I told you my boys' names, I have Nehemiah and I have Leland. And so we're in Leland, Michigan. I was just joking around. I said, Leland, I said, buddy, you got a city named after you. How cool is that? You know? And of course, Leland just thought that was awesome. And so I looked back in the rearview mirror after a little bit of time, and Nehemiah is crying. <laughs> I was like, what's wrong, buddy? He's like, I don't have a city named after me. <laughs> and I was like, dude, you have a whole book of the Bible. You know, just get over it. You'll be totally fine. But, uh, but you see, what, what is that all about? It's about, I want fairness, man. I want, I want what he has, right? And I think it's almost, the way I kind of think about it is like this. I think that all of us are born intuitively with a scale inside of us, right? And all of us kind of have this thing. It exists within us, and, and we have a scale that's always keeping track of fairness, Right? We want things to be even. And so when things are not going right, there's an intolerance. There's, a, there's, there's a, a revolution inside of us. We revolt against it. We uprise against the feeling of being treated unfairly. And you guys know this as well as I do. When you get older, right, the facts may change. Like we're not fighting over Legos anymore. At least I hope not, right? We're not fighting over Legos anymore. But the, the story remains the same, doesn't it? 
Because in our relationships and, and, and even in our culture, there is a preoccupation that many of us have with fairness. We live in a culture right now, as you guys know, that is very, that is very fairness conscious, right? We are preoccupied with it. So every time you flip on the news, what are the major issues that we see in our culture? Well, they're all about equality, aren't they? There's racial equality. Um, there, is, um, there is equal opportunities. There's all of these things that we see in our culture. And, and we live in a culture that is preoccupied, is very conscious about the issue of fairness. And not only in our culture, but we personally, right? All of us are interested in fairness, very interested in it in our relationships. And so whenever we're in a relationship and we feel like things are uneven, that, that this relationship is costing me, whether it's costing me physically or emotionally or financially or sexually, whatever we feel like this scale is out of whack, there's something inside of us that, that resists up against it. There's an uprising and we demand fairness. And this is something that I believe is inside of every single one of us. If you're married, my, my guess is that when you think back to the last fight that you had with your spouse, and this might be the case, it might not be, but my guess is for many of you, the last fight that you may have had may be centered around this issue of fairness. You're like, I don't think things feel even. I feel like I do this, this, and this, and I've been watching the kids, and I've been working hard at home, and I feel like you're just not pulling your weight. I don't feel like you're doing your end. And then the other person comes back, and they want to justify themselves. But I've been working hard, and I've been doing this, this, and this, and I feel like our sex life is not where it should be, and, and, and it becomes a balancing match about wanting fairness. We want fairness, right? And I think that this is something, and I'm convinced of this, and it's undeniable, that this exists inside of every single one of us. All of us have a scale inside of us that demands fairness. And that's not a bad thing. It's, not, it's just a thing thing. It's just something that's put inside of every single one of us. I think it's undeniable. And I would even say this. I would say that in some senses, this is really helpful. Having this inside of us can be a very helpful thing. And the reason is because this helps me understand how to love people the way I want to be loved. This, this reveals to me how to love my neighbor as I love myself. This helps instruct that, right? And on top of that, I would argue that this is a fantastic way, kind of a fantastic foundation to build a country on. One of the things I love about the country that we live in is that it's one that is, that is very concerned with fairness and equality. I think it's a great thing. But what I want to talk about today is I want to talk about how when you experience grace, right, when grace comes into your life, how something with this changes, how this scale inside of you, it, it looks totally different, and you find yourself becoming disinterested, I would even say it this way, becoming dissatisfied with fairness. So what am I talking about? All right, so let's go to Matthew 18. We'll pick it up here. And this story, Matthew 18, we're going to see a parable that Jesus gives to his disciples. And it is a parable that's about fairness and forgiveness. Okay? So we're going to take a look at this. So let's look at, we'll start in verse 21, Matthew chapter 18. So it says, then Peter came to Jesus, Peter being one of Jesus' disciples, and he asked, Lord, how many times should I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Up to seven times? And then Jesus answered, I tell you, not seven times, but 77 times. All right, so let's just pause there. Let me kind of do a little bit of recap. So basically, the Bible tells us that Peter and Jesus begin having this conversation, and Peter brings up the topic of forgiveness. And all of us know forgiveness in its very nature is an issue of, of imbalance. It's an issue of injustice, right? It's unfair is what forgiveness is all about. So, so Peter comes up to Jesus. He says, Jesus, I got a question for you. How many times should I, should I, that is I who follow you, 
which that would be very applicable to anyone in this room who follows Jesus. How many times should we, those who follow Christ, forgive other people? So he says, how many times should we forgive Jesus? And then Peter goes on to give a suggestion, right? He's like, what do you think, Jesus? He's like, how about like, uh, I don't know, about seven times. And, uh, and this actually is, is, if you guys know anything about this, this would have been a very generous suggestion on Peter's part. Uh, because back in this time, the rabbis and the religious teachers, they would have taught that you forgive, yes, but only three times. They had a three strike and you're out policy. You forgive someone three times, after that, you're done. So Peter, knowing Jesus, right, he knows that Jesus has a way of taking things a little further than the rabbis and the religious leaders of his day. And so Peter knows that. And so he's like, hey, Pete, he's like, hey, 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 Jesus, how many times do we forgive, right? Because I'm associated with you and stuff and I know you take things further than the religious leaders. So like, how many times do, do we do it? And then he's like, we think like seven and I can't help but wonder if, if Peter just thought, like, Jesus would be blown away. Like, whoa, Peter. <laughs> Settle down, man. No, no, no. Not seven, right? And Peter was probably pretty excited with himself. He's like, we think, like, seven? And then Jesus looks at him. He goes, Peter, not seven, man. Seventy-seven times. And some of you might have different translations there, by the way. And it says 70 times seven, which is a little more accurate um, in, in what Jesus probably would have meant. And you can only imagine Peter and the disciples, for them, they were probably like, whoa. And, and Peter probably started doing the math 70 times 7, that's 490 times. So what's Jesus saying? Is Jesus saying, yeah, you forgive 490 times, then on 491, you're like, we're finished, right? Is that what he's talking about? Well, no, no, no. What he's doing is he's, he's, he's exaggerating, right? And he's trying to make a point. And here's Jesus' point. He's like, Peter, for us, for those who follow Jesus, we don't keep track. In other words, what he says is, we offer forgiveness endlessly. There is no end to it. It's limitless for us. To which Peter and the disciples, and let's be honest, probably us too, were probably thinking, that's impossible. That's impossible. How? How is that even possible? And my guess is for you, you know, as we read that, you read Jesus' words, we forgive limitlessly, we forgive endlessly. If you actually think about what Jesus just said there, my guess is that many of us probably think to ourselves, that sounds good. It's not possible. It is impossible. How are we supposed to do that? And I think Jesus knew that. And so he goes on to explain to us how. And he does it through way of a parable. Jesus always told parables, these stories, to help illustrate a very significant point. And so he does that. So let's look at the parable, verse 23. He says, therefore, therefore, why therefore? Therefore is there because Jesus knows the thing that he just said is crazy. He's like, I know I just said it's crazy, so let me explain myself, right? Therefore, let me help you understand this a little bit, therefore. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And he, as he began to settle his accounts, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Okay, some of your translations say 10,000 bags of gold. Some translations say 10,000 talents. I just want to focus on that for a minute. So the Bible says that here, here's this king. Jesus says, okay, so there's a parable once upon a time. There's a king. He went to settle his accounts, which would have been a very normal thing for a king to do. He goes to one of his servants. And there's a servant who owed him 10,000 talents or 10,000 bags of gold is what the Bible says. Now, if you guys have ever studied this passage before, if you ever read this passage, you're probably aware that 10,000 talents is a sum of money but it is not just a big sum of money. It is not just a large sum of money. It is an impossible sum of money. Okay, this, is, this is not just like, oh, that's, that's a lot of money. This is astronomically big, 
all right? Just to give you some sense of how big this is, Josephus tells us in the first century during this era that in Jerusalem and the neighboring cities around Jerusalem, the annual amount of taxes that were received annually was 900 talents. It would take over 10 years of gathering taxes to even come close to 10,000 talents, okay? So this number was astronomical, all right? And they would have known that, the disciples would have. In our culture, the equivalent would be something like this. So I was like, you owed them like a zillion dollars. It was like zillions. You're like, I don't even have, we don't even have a capacity to understand something that big. And that's Jesus' point. And Jesus' disciples would have known that. They would have been like, whoa, that's a lot of money. Jesus is like, yeah, that's the point, right? So this guy owed him 10,000 talents, and so what does the king do? Verse 25. Since the servant was not able to pay, well, yeah, no, duh, right? No, no one can pay that amount. The master ordered that he and his wife and his children and that all that he had be sold to repay the debt, okay? And so, so the king says, okay, you can't repay me, so you gotta, sell, you gotta sell yourself and your family to me and to slavery to pay the debt. Now, that might sound really harsh, but you have to understand that in this culture, that was a very normal thing to do. If you couldn't, if you owed someone some money and you couldn't repay them back that money, it was very common for you to sell yourself into slavery to that person until you could pay back your debt. And if you couldn't pay it back in your lifetime, you would sell your children and your children's children and generations to come to slavery. It was a very normal thing. And so the king says, okay, you can't repay the debt. He's like, all right, then let's do the fair thing. The fair thing is that you have to pay me back. And so over the course of the next generations, your family is going to be enslaved to me. That's fairness, right? Then watch what happens at this next part. Verse 26, at this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged. Now pay back everything. You guys know this is a cry of desperation. There's no way he could pay back everything, but he's desperate. So he gets down on his knees. Please give me time. I'll pay back everything. And then watch what happens in verse 27. This is awesome. The servant's master took pity on him, and he canceled the debt, and he let him go. And so this king, the Bible says, this very, very merciful king had this man who owed him this astronomical amount of money. And, and he came to him and he, and, and he took pity on him. And the Bible says that he released him from his debt. He forgave him of his debt. And you guys, I think that if you just read this passage without understanding the context of this passage, it's very easy to breeze right past that. And just say, oh yeah, yeah, he just forgave him. That's cool. But, but listen, this is not flippant. Okay, this is not a small, this is, look, this is very costly forgiveness on the part of this king. Right? This isn't cheap forgiveness. This is costly forgiveness. This isn't cheap grace that the king was showing to this servant. This was very costly grace that he was extending him. This costed the king. I mean, massively. This was not just like, a, oh, you owe me 10 bucks, no big deal, I'll just cut my losses. This is a massive loss. He sacrificed for this servant. And that's amazing, it's beautiful. I'm sure you guys can already start making the connections of the picture that God is painting for us about the forgiveness that he's offered to us. And it's such a great story, but it doesn't stop there because then it goes on to take a really weird turn. I want you to notice what Jesus says here. Check this out, verse 28. But when that servant went out, which servant? That one, the one who just one verse ago was forgiven 10,000 talents, that one. When that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him 100 denarii or 100 silver coins is what some translations say. And he grabbed him and he began to choke him. 
Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. So the Bible says that this man who had just been forgiven 10,000 talents, been given 10,000 bags of gold, this astronomical amount, goes out in the very next verse, right? And he finds his servant, a guy, another fellow servant who owes him 100 denarii, is what the Bible says, or 100 uh, coins of silver. Now, just to give you some sense of how much money that is, back in this time, a, a day's wage was about a denarius, and so 100 denarii was 100 days wages. That's not a small amount of money, right? That's over three months worth of compensation. So that's not like chump change. But compared to the 100, uh, compared to the 10,000 talents, man, it's minuscule, right? And he goes out and look what the Bible says. He starts to get violent. Bible says he starts choking the guy, right? He starts demanding, you pay me back what you owe me, the 100 denarii, right? And then watch what happens next, verse 29. His fellow servant fell to his knees and he, be, and he begged him, be patient with me and I'll pay it back. Does that sound familiar? Be patient with me and I'll pay you back. Well, yeah, that's almost exactly verbatim that the words of the man who was forgiven the 10,000 talents said back in verse 26, almost verbatim. Look at verse 30, but he refused. Instead, he went off and he had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And when the servants saw what had happened, they were outraged. And they went and they told their master everything that had happened. The Bible says this guy had just been forgiven 10,000 talents by this king. And then he goes out and he finds a servant who owes him 100 denarii. In the very next verse, he demands that he pays him back. When he pleads for mercy, he doesn't give it to him. He sends him to prison to pay back everything he owes. I love the Bible tells us that as all this is happening, there's a group of other servants who are watching the whole affair take place. And the Bible tells us their emotion I think their emotion is really great. I want you just to notice what it says there again about the emotion of these guys. It says, uh, it says that they were greatly distressed. That's what the Bible says. These guys were greatly distressed. I think it's such a great word there. The term greatly distressed, what it means literally in the Greek is it means to be sorrowful and afflicted. It means to be, get this, this is cool. It means to have a sour and reluctant mind. Isn't that a great word picture? The Bible says that these servants saw what had happened and they, they, were, they were afflicted on the inside. They had a sour and a reluctant mind. In other words, what it means is it bothered them. It bothered them. This is the emotion that you get when you see something that's so lopsided, when you see something that's so hypocritical that it just eats at you. That's the emotion it's talking about. You guys know this emotion, right? This is when you find out that a police officer is breaking the law. You're like, man, that's not cool. It causes you to have a sour and reluctant mind. Like, that bothers me. This is when you find out when in a church, a place that's supposed to be, you know, talking about the love and the grace of God, you find out there's a scandal happening behind the scenes. And as you hear that, man, it just, it causes reluctance in your heart, sourness in your mind, right? This is when you find out that one of your good friends listens to Nickelback because <laughs> you're like, I don't know how it's possible that we can be friends and you do that. We can't be friends anymore. The Bible says that these guys were reluctant in their mind. They, they, were, they were distressed, greatly disturbed at this. Why was it that they were greatly disturbed, you guys? Why was it that they were so bothered by this? Well, the reason is because they had just witnessed something. They had just witnessed something that to them was unfathomable. Uh, let, let me explain it this way. I want to illustrate it a little bit because I think for you and I, when I talk about the difference of 100 denarii to 10,000 talents, we don't understand kind of the full picture of that. It's hard to get our mind around because the difference between 100 denarii and 10,000 talents is that of 600,000 times. That's how big it is. So I just want to illustrate it for you this way, all right, because I think it's such a big number that it's hard for us to get our mind around. Okay, so today I brought with me a grain of rice. Okay, I have a grain of rice 
know if you guys can see it. Probably not. It's in my fingers, okay? And, and so this is, let's just say this is representative of the 100 denarii, okay? So I'm going to put this on this end of the scale, right? There we go. That is what the servant was demanding back from his fellow servant, 100 denarii, all right? Well, if that's the case, 600,000 times that would be the equivalent of about 40 pounds of rice. So I happened to bring with me today 40 pounds of rice. I just had it on me. So I figured I'd bring it. So I got 40 pounds of rice here. Okay, so, so let me just show you how this works out. All right, so this is 10 pounds of rice here. I don't want to break this thing, so I'm going to do this way. All right, so here's 10 pounds. All right, and then this is 20 pounds. I don't even know if I need to keep doing this, but it's 20 pounds. All right, here's 30 pounds of rice. There we go. And here's 40 pounds of rice. All right, 40 pounds of rice. There you go. So this is the picture in this parable that Jesus is painting for us, all right? What Jesus is showing us is the lopsided nature of grace. This is what it looks like. And the Bible says when the fellow servants saw this, they were greatly bothered, right? It, it caused them, it caused them to, to, to be troubled in their minds. They had sour, sour minds about them. Why is that? Because for them, this is what they saw, right? They just witnessed a man who is on the benefiting end of the most unfair transaction of all time, go out and find a fellow servant who owed him this much and demand fairness. They just saw a man who was treated unfairly, who was, who was shown lavish grace, who then turned around and was unwilling to extend the same grace that he deserved. The Bible says that they were like, no, 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 no. That is not cool. And so what did they do? The Bible says they went out and they found the king and they told the king. And so how did the king respond? Well, look at this next part. This is a bit troubling. Here's what happens. The Bible says in verse 32, then the master called his servant in. He said, you wicked servant. He said, you wicked servant. I canceled all of that debt of yours. I canceled all of that debt of yours. And then he says, because you begged me to, shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant, just as I had on you? In his anger, the, ma the master handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. And then Jesus ends on a really high note, verse 35. This is how my heavenly father will treat each of you unless each of you forgive your brother from, and sister from your heart. Wow. Yeah, those are some tough words, aren't they? That's hard to deal with. Some of you are like, man, that, that seems really severe. That seems really serious, Jesus. Doesn't that seem like a pretty ungracious conclusion to come to? And you know what? It is an ungracious conclusion. It's a fair conclusion. You see, you guys, I think what should bother us more? Should it bother us more that this king at the end of this parable demanded fairness from his servant or that his servant who had just experienced such amazing grace wouldn't go in turn offer that grace to another person? See, what this king was doing at the end of this parable is he was basically saying this. Look, you want fairness? Is that what you want? You really want fairness? Well, then, okay, fairness is what you got. If we're going to play the fair game, then let's do the fair thing. Because here's the truth, all right? The truth is, you and I, we don't want fairness from God. We don't. We don't need fairness from God. What we need from God, what we desire from God is grace. It's what we need more than we know. 
is we need the grace of God to come in our lives. And you guys, when grace enters into your life and you have a real experience with the grace of God, something happens to this scale. And you start to become disinterested in fairness. You start to become dissatisfied with fairness for yourself and for others. You're like, I don't want what's fair for me. So how could I go and demand something that's fair for another person? He's showing us what Jesus is revealing to us is he's revealing to us the lopsided nature of grace. Grace is lopsided. And some of you guys might remember when we were together for our first week here, we said that grace is the distinguishing feature that sets Christianity apart from all their belief systems. So that grace is the distinguishing thing. It sets all, you know, this is what makes Christianity unique is grace. And you know, this is really it. And what is it about grace that's so unique? Well, this is the idea. Grace is, is the only belief system that is founded on this idea that, that you and I are the beneficiaries of the most unfair transaction in all time, in the entire universe. And that's what grace is all about. You see, every other belief system in our culture that we see today, every other worldview that we face is one that is somewhat interested in this idea of fairness. And so for example, one of the major belief systems that we see in our culture today, in fact, some of you might even have this belief system today, is of karma, right? And you guys know how karma works. If you don't remember, karma is basically this idea that the universe is a great, is a great equalizer, right? And so you have good and you have bad, and you have yin and you have yang, and you have darkness and you have light. And this is the idea of karma. And karma basically says, hey man, what comes around goes around. And so if you do bad things to other people, bad things are going to happen to you. If you do good things to other people, good things are going to happen to you. And this is the idea of karma. And many of us, we, we may, maybe we don't know it, but we kind of attribute to this belief system. And even for some of us who, we, who would say we believe in God, we might approach God this way. And we begin to approach God as we approach karma. And you can tell by the way we talk. Because what we'll do is we'll say things like this. We'll say, well, you know, I had a really crazy week this week of partying. And so I better get to church this week so I can balance the scales, right? I need to make sure everything's kind of even. I kind of cheated on my taxes a little bit. I know I wasn't really that honest. So I better do love Medina, you know, give back to the community in some way and, uh, you know, make sure everything's kind of even. Look, if that's the way you're approaching your relationship with God, that's karma, all right? Karma is not grace. Grace is so categorically different than karma. Karma says, oh, everything's got to be equal. Grace says, no, it's completely lopsided. This is the way it works with God. For some of us, the way we approach life and kind of our worldview is one of law. And that, that's very much uh, uh, something that's true for people who are religious. So if you're a person who kind of grew up in church or if you grew up around the church, there's a very good chance that you might approach your relationship with God like law. And what's law? Well, man, you guys know a scale is a great illustration of law, right? You ever go to a court building and you see scales because it's kind of the picture of justice. But here's what a law kind of mentality says. Law says, well, if I keep God's laws if I keep the Ten Commandments, right, if I basically live a sanitary life, if I, if, I, if, I, if I discipline myself hard enough, then I can earn favor with God and that, that God accepts me because I've done a good job at keeping his laws. And this, by the way, was the basic belief system of the Pharisees. That's why they were called the Pharisees because they wanted everything to be fair, you see. Wow. I went for it, that was terrible. They wanted everything to be fair, and, and, and so they would do that. And this is why the Pharisees, by the way, had no place in their thinking to accept that the sinners and the tax collectors could be accepted by God. 
They had no compartment to believe that. Why? Because they didn't understand grace. They thought everything worked this way. How could God accept this person who has sinned so much and he wouldn't accept me who's been so obedient and I've grown up in the church and I've done everything that he wanted me and I'm disciplined and I don't drink, smoke, or chew or go with women who do. I'm a good person, right? That's law. Some of us deal with God this way. That's not grace. That's law. And listen, law, the Bible tells us, is important because law points to our need for grace. The Bible says that all of us, none of us can keep the law. And so because of that, it reveals to us that we need grace. But law is not grace. Law puts the responsibility on the person. Grace says, man, it's all about God. It's all about what Jesus Christ has done for you. For some of us, we approach things with karma. For some things, we approach uh, with law. For some of us, uh, the way that we look, at the, we look at the world, our worldview is one of chance. And so we think, oh, it's all just luck, right? And, and there's no rhyme or reason. Sometimes you're up and sometimes you're down. And that's just the way it works. Is this is kind of how the universe goes. And for some of us, if we were really honest, this is the way we view our relationship with God. We take that same approach to our relationship with God. And what that results in is a very superstitious faith. We believe, oh yeah, man, God is real, but he's out there and he doesn't really care about us all that much. And so maybe if I do certain things, I can kind of get his attention and maybe I can increase my chances that maybe something good will happen. And so, so we approach it with superstition. You're like, oh, well, well, I have a big test tomorrow. So I better wear the cross that my mom got me for my birthday because it's my, it's my lucky spiritual charm, right? Or I, I need to wear my holy socks on, 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 you know, when I give the presentation, because I just want to, I, you know, no, I want to increase my chances and maybe God will pay attention. Look, and here, here's the thing, okay? Some of us approach things with luck and chance. Some of us approach things with law. Some of us with karma. Grace shatters all of that. Grace is categorically different. It is completely unique, totally unique. And what Jesus reveals to us is the lopsided nature of grace. And what Jesus says is this, grace is this. Grace is that you and I are the beneficiaries of the most unfair transaction in the universe. That you and I are the beneficiaries of the grace of God that has been lavished on us, that we're the ones who are forgiven the 10,000 talents. That's us. Some of you are like, when did I ever owe God 10,000 talents? When did that ever happen to me? And listen, if, if you don't understand that part, I would really encourage you to go back to last week's sermon. We talked about the seriousness of sin in light of the holiness of God. We said, man, sin is a big deal to God. And look, the truth is that each one of us, the Bible says, have not lived up to God's standard. And as a result of that, the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. We owe God a, a price that we could not pay. We are in debt to God an amount that we cannot repay to him. And the Bible says that Jesus Christ took on that payment for us, that he paid our debt, that he forgived for us. And listen, you guys, the Bible tells us that that payment that Jesus Christ has done on our, on our, on our part, on our behalf, is not cheap. God's forgiveness is not cheap forgiveness. It's very costly. God's grace is not cheap grace. This wasn't like, oh yeah, I'll just forgive you. No, no, no. It cost him his son. That is a massive debt. That is more than 10,000 talents. And when we realize the forgiveness of Christ that's offered to us, not because of the good things that we do, not because we got all of our stuff together, just because he loves us, right? When we understand that grace and it comes flooding in our lives, we begin to realize the lopsided nature of grace. You guys, how do you know that you've embraced grace? Here's how you know. You become disinterested in fairness. You become dissatisfied with fairness. And as a result of that, one of the other ways that you know you've embraced grace, Jesus tells us here, is because forgiveness starts to happen in your life. 
Jesus says when grace starts coming down in your life and you start to experience it, by sheer definition, forgiveness is a result. You begin to forgive from your heart is what Jesus said. And by the way, I like that he says forgiveness from the heart because I think there's some confusion about forgiveness. Forgiveness, of course, does not mean that you continue to subject yourself to abuse. Forgiveness, of course, does not mean that you enable somebody necessarily. But forgiveness from the heart is simply this. Man, you owed me. You don't owe me anymore. I release you from your debt. You owed me emotionally. You owed me physically. You owed me financially. You owed me sexually. You don't owe me anymore. No bitterness, no resentment towards you anymore. Forgiveness from the heart. And the Bible says that when grace comes into your life, by a sheer definition, the result is that you begin to show grace to others. Forgiveness is the result. Because by definition, when grace comes down in your life and the weightiness of grace uh, tips the scales this way, by definition, the unforgiveness will be catapulted out. Bitterness, you know, all those things unforgiveness in your heart, those things come launching out. How do you know that you've experienced grace when you become a more forgiving person? Not, not perfectly, but increasing. Let me ask you a question. Those of you who follow Jesus, the more that you follow Christ and the more that you embrace, embrace grace, do you find that you become a more forgiving person? Have you found that over the years, over the time of following Jesus, that you begin to release bitterness more? Is that happening? Are you willing to forgive? If you're not, there might be a really good chance you haven't embraced grace. Because I don't know if you guys have noticed this, but one of the things that Jesus does, I think this is brilliant, is Peter asks Jesus a question about forgiveness, and Jesus gives him an answer about grace, which reveals something amazing to us. If you have a forgiveness problem, you don't have a forgiveness problem. If you have a forgiveness problem, you have a grace problem. Because the, the key to forgiving is not to just try harder. It's not just to, man, just think harder about how you should forgive. Just discipline yourself more. Because you and I know that doesn't work. It doesn't work because I don't have it inside of me and you don't have it inside of you to forgive. I have it in me to forgive if you've done something small. If you have a mild offense, then maybe I can oversee it. But if you do something big to me, I don't have the wherewithal. I don't have the capacity in myself to forgive in that way. I don't. But the gospel teaches me that when I realize the grace that God has in my life, I tap into an unlimited resource of forgiveness. Right? I tap into a bank account of forgiveness that's limitless. And so when Peter says, how many times do we forgive Jesus? Like seven? He's like, oh, no, 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 we never stop. Because God's forgiveness in our life never stops. And so we extend forgiveness to others as well. And so here's my question to you, just real simple this morning. Have you experienced grace? Have you? Like for real experienced grace, not just do you know about it, but has it come into your life? Has something changed in this scale in your heart? Have you, have you encountered the lopsided nature of this? And, and a result of that, as you follow Christ more and more, do you, are you becoming a more forgiving person? For some of you this morning, if I asked you about that, you would, you would tell me about relationships in your life right now where there is unforgiveness, right? where someone owes you physically, emotionally, sexually. Someone owes you. Right? And in your heart, maybe for you, you're like that servant, and you, and you are bitter and angry and you are choking that person in your mind, demanding that they pay you back for what they owe you. And, and listen, if that's the case, I think there might be a good chance that maybe you haven't experienced grace because if you have a forgiveness problem, you don't have a forgiveness problem. You have a grace problem. And the key to forgiving is just to try harder. It's to realize the incredible amount 
that God has forgiven you, the love that he has lavished on you. And when that happens and your heart gets a hold of that and that experience happens, unforgiveness is catapulted out. Not perfectly, but increasingly, you forgive. And so what I want to do today as the band makes their way up here, I just want to close by asking you this question is have you experienced this? Have you experienced this? And if there are people right now in your life who you are harboring bitterness, resentment, you are unwilling to forgive. If there's names in your, in your mind, family members, friends, ex-friends, spouses, ex-spouses, if there's people in your life who you're unwilling to forgive, you are choking them in your mind. Would you do me a favor? Would you just take this time that we sing and would you just talk to God about them? Talk to God. Say, God, I, I, I am unwilling to forgive. God, I, I, I can't forgive. I want to forgive, but I can't find myself. And instead of asking God simply to help you forgive, would you do this? Would you ask God to help you understand how much you've been forgiven? Because I believe when you start to focus on this end of the scale, rather on this end of the scale, this end will take care of itself. Because when you realize the grace of God that's in your life, the weightiness of it, by nature, by definition, unforgiveness and bitterness are catapulted out. So would you take this time, would you think, would you pray? Would you interact with God in the places that you need to interact with God? You know you've experienced grace when you become disinterested with fairness. Let's pray together. Jesus, I wanna say thank you for an opportunity to be able to focus together today on your grace. And, um, but the truth is, grace is not fair. You're not fair. And you're not fair to us. And I'm so thankful for it. Because God, you're, you're, you're better than fair. You're gracious. And Lord, I pray that because for those of us in this room who've embraced grace, who experienced grace, I pray that we would live life by grace. Help us to be disinterested in fairness in our relationships. Help us to be disinterested in fairness in, 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 in the people who have hurt us. Help us to want grace because we want grace for ourselves. I pray that you'd help us to want grace for others. God, how, how, how hypocritical is it when we who have been shown such amazing grace would turn around and demand fairness? And so Lord, I pray that you would instruct our hearts and teach us how to forgive from our hearts. I pray, I pray for the person in this room who has been severely offended, is having a hard time forgiving. God, I know that I don't want to make light of the offenses that might be represented in this room. There's some bad stuff that's happened, some really, really bad stuff. But Lord, I don't believe in, it's until we understand the great depth that you've forgiven us that we begin to realize and find a capacity to forgive in ways that we don't know. So Lord, help us to be disinterested in fairness and help us to embrace grace for ourselves and for others. And so, Lord, we lift these things up to you and we ask you that you would teach us and continue to mold us. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.